Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, as always, for being here. If this is your first time, welcome. We do a podcast where we interview queer performers, and then we play a clip of one of their performances. We have a great one for you today, Moxie G. Rogue. She's someone that I've known since I've started doing stand-up, and she's always been kind of like a stand-up godmother to me. She's always been so helpful and cool and friendly and just funny. Like She's just fun to hang out with, and I learned so much about her recording this episode. But before we get into that, just want to say last night we recorded our first ever live episode, which will head your way June 14th at noon. It it was such an amazing experience. It's something I've always wanted to do. And we had a great audience and we had Jeff D, who was on that one, Jeff DeRuin, who's an amazing stand-up comic. He's an actor. He's lived in L.A. and all over the South and he's toured the country and he does so many amazing things. And it was cool to be up there with him and just have live feedback from a podcast. It was cool. Live feedback that's not my cat's because they would be in every freaking episode if they could. They are always looking to get their foot in that door or their paw in the door, if you will. They probably think they have feet. They think they can do anything. It was cool, though. We even had a Q&A at the end. Um, I won't ruin it for you because I actually want you all to listen to it. But it was fun. It was interesting. We had some wine. I got some cheese and crackers for folks. This was done at our sponsor of this episode and also of the live episode, our sponsor, Crescent City Books. Crescent City Books is located in downtown New Orleans. If you're ever here to visit, check them out. 124 Barone Street. It's right off a canal. It's a crazy building. They had a spiral staircase. They had a safe that's the size of a room. They have books, floor to ceiling. Anything you want, they have it. They had a great space for us to do the podcast. It's just this old, beautiful building in New Orleans. Best part, they have a store cat, Isabel. We'll post some pictures. We've actually posted some on our Instagram, but I'll post more because that cat is so cute. Please do not tell my cats that. It's it's a, such a New Orleans place, which I love. They had a, like an original Confederacy of Dunces book. They had all these great New Orleans books. They had a whole queer section, which you know we love. They had autobiographies, like anything you want. It was great. And it's located next to a bar that has, it's called Cajun Mike's Pub and Grubs, one of my favorite places in town. And their sign has an alligator eating a po'boy. And what is more New Orleans than that? This is actually a bar I used to go to um, when I first started working in that area. I work a couple blocks away. And they used to have on the ceiling, they had money uh, pasted, uh, stapled on there, glued, whatever. It was from all over the world. And I was like, this is weird that they just have this money hanging out here. And I asked one of the bartenders one day, like, what's up with all this weird money? Where did it come from? Is there a story? And she said, yeah, sailors used to come to New Orleans. It's a port city. And sailors would come all the time, and they'd have money from all these places all over the world that they couldn't do anything with. And so they would just come to the bar and get drunk and be like, hey, I'm going to put this on the ceiling. It was a great idea. And that was really cool, and that was one of the things I loved about Cajun Mike's, but unfortunately there was a spa or some sort of thing um, above them on the floor above them, and they flooded one day, and the whole ceiling collapsed. It was the 
honestly one of the worst days of my life when I went to that bar and the door was closed and the bartender knew us so she came outside and like showed us what happened and we were like no what are we gonna do but just like New Orleans Cajun Mike's came back bigger and stronger than ever and now they have a ceiling that uh, has a nice pattern on it it's some sort of metal maybe cop I don't know I'm not good at that stuff but it's beautiful still dive bar feel still the best cheese fries in town trust me on this I have tried every cheese fry in this city and probably every other city and I can say for sure these are the best I don't know it's an awesome experience I love New Orleans I can talk about New Orleans all day but let's get to Moxie G Rogue let's get to the podcast so you're Moxie G Rogue yeah it means um guts gone wild guts gone Wow. All right. I like uh, Moxie's big on her, like her glasses that she's wearing right now have her name on them. She's usually got a, a Moxie shirt. I, I love, and I love the word Moxie. Like Moxie is, how'd you, how'd that come about? Um, it's a old word from the twenties and it means have guts. And this is like a new adventure to my life. So it's all about having guts and getting out there. I mean, stand up is not for the faint of heart. No. <laughs> I mean, Not you got to have a thicker skin to do stand-up. I was really sick, and I said, if I can do anything in the world that I wanted to do, would be stand-up comedy. And so as I'm sitting on my hospital bed, and I'm watching stand-up comedy, I think I was watching George Carlin at the time. And I was like, that's what I want to do. It takes guts to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, moxie. Yeah, well, because it's, it's guts to go up there once. And we see a lot of people, um, especially around New Year's, I guess it's like a lot of folks' New Year's resolutions to try stand-up for the first time. Right. Um, but it, it takes guts to do that for sure. And then it, it takes guts to come back, to like go through that, you know, it could be harrowing experience of being up there. I don't know. How was your first set? My first set was at the Comedy Underground in Seattle. I had a comedy sensei, Big Funny. His name is Travis Simmons. And him and I got together and we started to write. And he was teaching me how to write. But although he taught me stuff and gave me like the little nuances of writing comedy, it just felt like it wasn't in my own voice. But after working with him about, I think, three or four weeks, we got into Comedy Underground and I got up on stage. I can't remember the actual joke, but I remember the premise. The premise was about spiders. That's so crazy. Because we're, we're recording at my house and Moxie got here and I was like, she's like, how are you doing? You seem like you've had a lot of coffee. And I was like, no, there's just been two, there was two spiders in my house. I came downstairs and there were two freaking spiders in my house and I cannot deal with spiders. I cannot handle spiders. And I tried to get my cats. I brought each of the three cats over to the spiders to show them the spiders. And they all just walked away. Like, why would I put effort into this? But luckily, my girlfriend came downstairs. And uh, as she was uh, getting rid of the spiders, Moxie knocked on the door. (laughs) So I'm yelling back, is it gone? Are they gone? And she's just like, I just got here. Yeah, so it was, I think the the premise was, I don't know when to bitch up or bitch out. The joke was that sometimes I see a spider and I don't know if I should bitch up or bitch out. <laughs> you know, I and, bitch, it, I and bitch it just out. goes on and on. <laughs> when I see, when I look at the old tapes of me and I see how much I've grown, I laugh at the old stuff. 
Only because it's in poor form and it's not <laughs> as well as I thought it was. But at the time I did it, I was better than sliced bread at the time. Oh, I yeah. Did it. <laughs> well, we need to have that in me. Like, you're not going to get on stage if in your head that's not how you feel. About <laughs> right. It. Like, I was better you're than like, sliced bread. I did good. You know, like, this is the worst joke I've ever written. Let me get up in front of strangers and share this. Yeah, right, right. But right. see, so do you watch old tapes of yourself? I record everything. When I got my stuff, I record everything and I watch tapes. For the first three years, I recorded everything. I did audio and I watched tapes. You're dedicated. I got really sloppy at the last two years. Like, I stopped recording at one point. When after I went to Africa, I stopped recording. I gave my video camera and stuff away in Africa. And You're <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice person or, uh, well, the thing about being in Africa, I think... Where I in Africa in, were you? I was in Lagos um, in 2013. Well, 2014. Yeah, 2013. And I came back in 2014. And so, while I was there, on the way leaving, one of my sisters in Africa go, I like that camera, and I go, here. So, and from that point on, I haven't recorded since. So, it's been, what, four years I yeah. haven't recorded. So, I was so sloppy. I got a website up and some other stuff, but I just haven't recorded it. It's, I record my my girlfriend actually she's really good about recording um, the audio just on her phone mm-hmm. because we don't have a camera. But I, I'm bad about listening to all of them. And I really I used to be so good. I used to like Wednesday night I go up Thursday morning. I was I'm listening, listening writing it yeah. and going back and go oh because you get laughs where you didn't think you should get. Laughs. Yeah, and do, do you like that or do you not? Sometimes it drives me crazy when I'm like, it's not at the punchline yet, and then people laugh at that part, but then they don't laugh at the punchline. And it, sometimes I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand this. But sometimes I'm like, I love it. Like I just, this is great. I didn't expect it, and it's great, and I somehow connected with this audience. I I love it when wherever they laugh or they give a response, I just feel like they're feeling me. What I hate the most is that. It's called laughs per minute. And I gauge my laugh. So each laugh have a rating. That <laughs> That's one. And that, oh, I can't stop. I'm about to pee myself. That's fine. The laugh I hate the most is that real uncomfortable. <laughs> or the pause in the near. Yeah. Or when someone goes, that's funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> laugh then if it's yeah. funny. Don't just like, go, that's funny. <laughs> So, so you rate it for yourself? Yeah. And so I rate each performance and I'm always tickled at the laughs that come before the punchline because that means one, they knew what you was going to say before you said it. And that means they were really grooving with you. And uh, two, they just tickled because they ain't got nothing else to do but laugh. You know, they <laughs> too drunk or too whatever. Because you have to understand, we do nightclubs. So, at certain points, they're laughing because they're drunk and they don't hear nothing you said. Or there's like a certain beat at the end where they're like, oh, this is the point that I laugh because she stopped talking for a second to receive receive my laughter. Right. So, you ever have a habit, you're looking on stage and you look in someone's face and they're not laughing or they're not responding? Oh, yeah. And it throws you off a little bit? Yeah. Or I've done this joke so many times that I know it does well and it falls so flat. 
and I can see the look because some places, thank God, they have like lights where I can't see the audience at mm-hmm. all. And some places are very bright and I can see everybody's sad face because they're sad for I don't like when they feel pity for me. When they're, <laughs> when they're like, she's trying so hard up there and I'm trying to be a good audience member, but I can't do it right now. Right. And you can see that in their faces. Yeah. Oh, man. And that is crushing. <laughs> and I started putting on the recorder just for that. So I wouldn't pay attention that much. But I noticed, like you say, you told a joke that you told a million times and it falls flat on the audience. I figured out through listening to my tapes why that happened. Because the tonality that you said and because you said it so much, you give it off a tonality of, I'm tired of saying this joke. And they pick up that nuances. And when you listen to the tapes, you hear it in your voice like, okay, let me tell this joke again. That makes a lot of sense because that's probably true. You know, yeah, there are certain jokes. My mom was a math teacher, so I do math calculations where I'm like, this is 95% effective joke. But I'll come out with that joke at up top knowing like mm-hmm. that will at least get people to listen to me or will get people to laugh and be interested and if that falls flat then yeah it throws my whole you know set off but it, I, it could be the delivery because I could be like I know this is good so I'm going to deliver it in a way where I know it's good and if there's like a cockiness to it because I know some performers do have you know a little cock where they're like yeah I, I got this and then sometimes that can throw people off too I have a way of being in my head too much. Like, if I study a performance and I go out my way to, I want to say this, and every word has to be, because I'm a writer, so every word has to be on point. And if I mess up the wording in some kind of way, it'll throw my set off, or, mm-hmm. and I'm concentrating on, or, say, I have a performance at 8, and I just wrote this dynamite joke at noon. Ain't no way I'm going to memorize it <laughs> and get it in my body by night. And deliver it in the and way deliver that. And deliver it that I want away. And I want to do it so bad because I know that's the funny. But I'm not all the way there. And that, that to me is the hardest part because I'm not all the way there, but I really want to do this joke. <laughs> so I have to make a decision out of yeah. I'm going. And nine times out of ten, when I'm struggling on that level, I'm going to bomb that night. Because I am so wrapped up in, I want to do this, I want to do that. Or my favorite, when you walk into an audience and everything you prepare is not fit for that audience. Oh, yeah. Reading your audience is so important. And then you got to re-scramble in your head. So you're sitting in the green room and that's the space off from the stage. And a lot of times it's never green and it's never <laughs> really big. It's not even a room. It's yeah, more I was like, like it's a It's not slither. usually a room. <laughs> it's a slither. It's just a space. <laughs> yeah, it's not even a whole space. It's like a half a space <laughs> that you sit there. You got to be really quiet. And you're sitting there rewriting your jokes in your head or your format in your head. Talking to yourself. Like. And talking to yourself. <laughs> I think my best performances have been when I really don't care and I'm just here to have fun. That's how you got to come in with it. We're like, you're like, I'm going to have fun regardless of the response. And you're not looking in everybody's eyes and being like, this person's thinking this and this person's feeling this. Like when she, when you can transcend that and and that's what's happened. And then you're having fun too. Yeah. And that's what happened the last two years of doing comedy. Got to that place. I got to that place where I'm just having fun. Like Queer Mountain last night, I really struggled all week on the topic of what I wanted to write. But I had been writing the mommy piece for a while. Like I told you, I have a book. It's an excerpt from a book that I had been writing on that. And so I just took it and made it more poetic. But I had been playing with it all week, just 
Because yeah. I have a writing exercise. Every week I give myself a writing exercise. Oh, that's great. So I had a writing exercise, and that was the writing exercise for a week ago. And I had been playing with it, wanting to make it into a, like a poetry piece. And the stuff about my mom just came out of my heart. Yeah, I could feel that. Yeah, it just came <laughs> out of my heart. Mother's Day is tomorrow. I, I'm i 50 years old and I always wishing to talk to my mom. No, it's, it's a tough thing because, you know, a lot of times mother-daughter relationships are very complex and complicated and not as simple as, Mother-daughter like... Mother-daughter relationships <laughs> suck ass, man. <laughs> you, by the time you realize you love your mother or you really like her, if you don't really have a real good relationship with her in the beginning, they usually only way out or they did. <laughs> And my mother relationship, my mother and I relationship was intense because she was an intense woman and in no kind of bullshit kind of way. And she was very honest because, I mean, she was a very smart woman. She didn't have a college degree. She didn't graduate from high school, but she was very straightforward and honest and determined in her own state, in her own being. And it was, but it wasn't something back in the day that you really praised people for. You know, that's just who she was. You Especially, know? you know, women in a certain era where that was not seen as a strong suit or a good thing. No. Like I said, she decided that my daddy was going to take care of her the rest of his life. She meant that shit. Mm-hmm. She was never going to get a job. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, she meant that shit, man. And, and I think that's what I loved about her. But I didn't see her strength until I got, until I got older. I didn't understand it. And I didn't understand her choices until I got older. Did she did she shield you from a lot of things? Um, she was just hardcore. You know, it's about survival. When you depend on a man who's left you, married another woman, and still depend on him to take care of you, it's about survival. So yeah. it wasn't about shielding, because girly meant she wasn't going to work, so she never went to work. <laughs> so there was, a, and we lived uptown off of General okay. Taylor. All right, so you grew up in New Orleans. I grew up in New Orleans. I'm from here, down the street from Dr. Sheen's office where you get the gold teeth from. <laughs> yes. And so we had this three-bedroom house, double shotgun that my dad turned into a one-family home. Oh, that's really awesome. So on one side of the room, one side of the house was bedrooms and a bathroom. On the other side of the house was the kitchen, the living room, and the dining room. So, I mean, and it was a nice house. It sit up off the ground, had a big yard in it, and I was never allowed to go outside the yard. So, in a weird kind of way, yes, she shielded me. I I went to Catholic school, and I went to Blessed Sacrament. They shielded you from life as well? <laughs> you, yeah. Probably I went fun. to Blessed Sacrament. <laughs> Only white people I saw was the nuns. <laughs> and they were mean as shit because they whooped us often but I was one of those kids that didn't like to get hit but those nuns beat us with rulers and to get in trouble and to get beat by a ruler is intense yeah <laughs> as a child too you don't you yeah know. and like, they're the authority figures so it, it did actually traumatize more folks than than they thought they thought they're helping you know they're gonna teach discipline and god's word and i don't know if they were helping or they were just recreating slavery in their mind at that point i just knew i never wanted to be hit and i was good with staying out of trouble and the school was right behind xavier Crow. So there was like the church and everything was right behind Xavier Pro. So we did that. And then on weekends, we did the Baptist church because my grandmother was whole, um, had a little Zion. She was the secretary for little Zion. 
And so we did weekends in Baptist church. Now, my mom never went to church. She wasn't a church goer. But she but, sent you guys? But I had to go. Do you, you have siblings? I have siblings. I have two sets of siblings. I have three older sisters that are 16, 17, 18 years older than me. Oh, wow. And then I, my dad married his second wife, and I have another set of siblings. I have a brother that's younger than me and a, I have a brother that's younger than me and a sister that's younger than me. I have a stepbrother that's younger than me and another brother that's older than me. But we don't believe in steps, so I don't like to say step. Everybody helps everybody. Um, the older ones take care of the younger ones. So my older siblings saved me many a night. My, my mom grew up in a time where it's better I spoil a child. And, um, it worked out for you. Um, thank God for siblings. Because when things got a little bit too rough and a little bit too, I'm about to beat your butt energy, my siblings would step in and go, Mama, I got it. (laughs) Which would save me. Because that was really hard. School was really hard for me. So I would always say I didn't have homework when I had homework. And Mm. and I would be... That would catch up with you. Yeah, and it would catch up with me every time because I would fail a class like I failed second grade. And my mom was not happy. Thank God for a sibling because she just go, Mama, I got it. Which I love my siblings. My older siblings was really good to me when we were younger. Good, they were looking out for you. Sometimes when there's that big of an age gap, they're just like, I'm not going to help. Yeah, they were really kind to me. I mean, they brought me, my oldest sister brought me clothes and took me to concerts. And then I had one sister in the middle who was just very patient and kind. And then I had another sister who was in the military. And she was the youngest. And her, she was... That kind of sister where you can do whatever you want here in these walls. So I could smoke, drink, do whatever I wanted. As long as it was under under her roof and in these walls. Like, I couldn't go outside and do it. But when I go spend the summers with her, we would turn up every summer. I'd be getting totally wasted. (laughs) I was getting wasted at 12. I'd be totally (laughs) wasted messing around with her now. Nowadays, she'd probably go to jail for that shit. But when <laughs> back then, it was what you do. Yeah, so. there's a lot of things that were very normal and fine back then. That, right, that is so not fine right now. Yeah, like when I was a kid, um, during summers, when both my parents had to work, they would just leave us at home. They would just leave us. And and they would call us like twice a day, and we just had to make sure we answered the phone. And then we would go running around the neighborhood. Like they didn't... I remember at one point there was developers developing a new complex behind our house, and we would go back there and jump in some like man-made lake that probably had chemicals. Like I don't know because I was a kid and I had freedom to do that as long as I was home to answer their call. And, I was good, yeah, and that's and I what happened with the second bunch because I was the oldest with the second bunch of kids. So my dad got remarried. And I was the oldest with the second bunch of kids. All we had to do was answer the phone. They would leave. There's and, no cell phones and tracking. And, and I was, oh, I was over like, I have a brother a year younger than me and he would take care of my little brother and I would take care of my little sister. And my job was to comb her hair and press her clothes and make sure. And we had chores we had to do, like certain things had to be done before my mom came home. And the rest of the day was yours. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. As long as you answered the phone and you vacuumed and you cleaned the bathroom and you cooked dinner, you were good. Yeah. 
We were latchkey kids for real. And nowadays, then. that's uh, child neglect. Yeah, right. <laughs> you go to jail for that. Yeah, CPS. But that, that was my whole street, too. Everyone, like, all the kids on the street had the same deal because we, like, no one had a stay-at-home parent at all. And, right. you know, our, our parents were all gone working all day, and we would just go to each other's houses, play video games, like, do whatever we wanted. The, uh, all yeah, that's what situation. we did. We did so much. Like, we would just travel. I, um, back then, my dad lived in Morero. So there were a lot of... So that's across the... Across the river, yeah. Yeah. And it was across the river, and it was back in... Right off of Ames Boulevard. So it was nothing but wooded trees. Yeah. They just started building subdivisions back there. So our subdivision was the only one that was back there. Was that creepy? Like I loved it because there was a lot of woods to go play in. There was construction sites to play in. There was, you Construction know. sites were fun. Yeah. yeah I know. know, like, my parents are just like, right, if they're listening, they're like, uh, we could have been arrested and had no idea why. And it's right. Like, but... we, we were playing in construction sites, like, I remember riding bikes through construction sites, making ramps and stuff. Yeah, they had all the materials. Yeah, you're right. Left it out there. <laughs> and I remember just going through there and never worrying about it. See, my parents are dead now, so I can talk as much shit as I want. <laughs> my parents listen to this podcast. Every, <laughs> Hi, parents. Everyone. My mom always calls me. She's like, I, I didn't know that about you. <laughs> so I, I should probably censor what I say, but I'm just like, no, you're just going to learn things, and I'm 34 now, so you'll have to just well, do, I often soften the blow by going, I love you, but this is what happened. Love you, mom and dad. There you there go. go. Now, this is what this. happened. <laughs> yeah. my, my parents... um. Both of my parents are dead now, so I used to steal my father's car. We had two cars. We were a two-car family, and I would steal my father's car because that's how I learned how to drive. My father wasn't very patient. He was a U.S. Marshal, and he wasn't very patient, very strict, military type of guy. And he took me driving lessons once, and by the time he finished yelling at me, he made me nervous. So from that point on, I begin to steal his car every day and <laughs> teach myself That didn't make drive. you nervous. Like, yeah. stealing a car from a U.S. Marshal and driving by yourself was Didn't fine. That, that was fine. That, <laughs> that was, was perfect. Cool. I would steal his car every day and drive it to down the Lafitte LaRose Highway. So you go in that area, in that subdivision, you go down the highway, and there's little waves. The highway looks like a snake all the way through. And then you turn around again, you turn and come back. I would do that every day for an hour. And that's how I taught myself how to drive. <laughs> now, and, and I've realized how not to go too fast and how to navigate those curves. And, yeah. Yeah. And a few times I messed up and wind up in the ditch and I had to figure out how to get out. But I figured it out. Yeah, before the marshals got called. <laughs> yeah. And before he came home, he came, him and his, my mom came home at six. Now my stepmom is still living. So if she happens to hear this <laughs> podcast, she is not going to be a happy comper. Love Tell you. Her you love her. Yeah. <laughs> love you. Yeah. So you, so you're in New Orleans, Catholic school through eighth grade. Did you do Catholic school for high school? Um, I was determined not to do Catholic school for high school. Um, my mom and my father had other ideals, but I was determined not to. So what I did back in the day, McDonald 35, Benjamin Franklin, and Warren Easton, you had to take a test to go to those schools because those was considered the elite public schools in New Orleans, and you had to have an A-B average. So I started studying for the test, to take the test, and I was studying on my own. 
and I was boosting my vocabulary because I was determined, and they were considered public schools, and I was determined to go to public schools, and I wasn't going to wear any more uniforms. <laughs> so, and I had to, when you went to go to Catholic school, you have to wear black and white shoes, Scottish, cutish looking skirt. With a vest and a white shirt, and I hated those uniforms. And well, you're not a uniform person. Like you're, you're your own. You're Moxie G Rogue. Like, right. I don't, I don't the see uniforms yeah. was the uniforms was so everybody looked the same, and it was so unflattering, mm-hmm. which was so annoying to me. So I was like, I'm going to public school. I'm going to wear public school. I'm getting into 35 because I'm not doing that. So I took the test, and I think I scored a 95. Damn. And, <laughs> All self-taught. Yeah. And I scored a 95. I had a wonderful teacher. Her name was Miss Anderson. And she gave me more extra. She gave me extra work. She gave me homework. She gave me. And I ate everything she gave me. It turned into knowledge. It was She just fed me as much as I can handle. She, she brought books for me and found books for me and just gave me so much stuff to study. I made a 95 on the test. I got into 35. My mom stayed over here and my dad stayed in Marrero. And that summer, my mom and I got into a major argument and I moved in with my father. Do you remember what the argument was about? Or is it one of those that it was so major at the time and then now you're like, I can't even tell you what happened. The argument was about my little niece. She was home. We were home. And she wanted me to fix her cereal. And she began to cry. And I said no. And my mom woke up out of deep sleep and was like, why not get the baby cereal? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and me and my mom got that it. And that was it. That was it. <laughs> that was the argument. And now it's, it's so funny because that niece is grown and got her own kids. And it was so silly. It was so silly. Not at the time, then. though. At the time, it was, life. It, was it was life and death. And I moved out that day and went stay with my father. Because when you are older sibling or even a younger sibling in a house with other kids, in our household, you become responsible for the younger kids. And I didn't want to take care of other people's kids. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> but that's not an option. And being, and in that time period going, I don't want to, to an adult. You never, you could never say no to another adult, no matter what it was. Yeah, it was yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Yeah. Even if you didn't want to do it, even if it was something that was bad to you, you couldn't say no. Or you were scared to say no. It, it just wouldn't be in your best interest. And so you'd be so scared not to say no, you just say yeah to everything. And so we got into a big argument. I moved on. My sister came. The one in the middle came, got me. She said, come home with me. And I went home with her. And But she stayed across the river, too. So next thing I know, I was staying by my dad. And then school started. And I was in 35, and mm-hmm. I lived across the river. I was like, how far is that? Because that Marrero is not just across the river. It's a whole, there's a whole giant bridge that my car can personally <laughs> right? get up and down. Like, that's not just like, oh, it's just right over the bridge right here. So every morning, we would get up at 4 or 5, get dressed, get on the interstate, get on the uh, Crescent City Bridge. To come back over to the city because my dad worked in the city. He worked at the courthouse. And my stepmom worked as an accountant downtown. So I would have to catch the bus from downtown. And the ride was just so much that I couldn't keep track of. I like I played sports. I played softball. I ran track. 35 was really demanding. I had to bring every book home. Every- yeah, the kids forget it. They all have digital copies. Of right. Shit no, we had to bring books. <laughs> I had a book sack full of... Say I had, what, six periods, seven periods? 
a book for each period, mm-hmm. a notebook for each of those books. And then I had my softball equipment yeah, I was that say, I would carry. Yeah. <laughs> and then my locker was so full. And then I had to dress for success. That mean I had to wear high heels, stockings, a skirt, a dress shirt. For you personally or for the school? For the school, we had to dress for success. And my mom really was into that. My stepmom was really into it. So by mid-year, I started hanging out. Smoking weed. Yeah. I'm like, I don't picture you like getting stockings out and rolling them up. And- I had stockings on two and a half inches. It's New Orleans, too. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, and I had to dress that like that so- every day. For the first two, two semesters, for the first half of the year, I guess from August to February, I was dressing like that. By February after Mardi Gras, yeah. I had cut loose. Because I think in February, I found out. That I was late every morning for school. And because I was late, the first period of the class, I would show up late. Well, by mid-year, I had missed all those tardies added up to absences. Oh, shoot. And that means, although I had an A in the class, I was going to get an L. And at that point, I was like, okay, we're done. Yeah, you're like, well, if I'm going to get an F anyway, then what am I... Yeah, but I showed up to class I got there when I got... You're putting so much into getting there, you know, it, it's, and people don't think about it. It was a new rule that the school board instituted, and they had to follow it. And so I was already now, at 3-5, you can only fail one class, if you fail any. <laughs> so you take a test to get into. Yeah, we take a test to get into. <laughs> and I was struggling in my algebra class. So I knew I was going to fail that one. But when I found out I was failing the at that point, we had failed. So I was like, okay, let's kick back. So I started selling weed at school, made some money, and smoked some weed, and hung out. (laughs) It was done. That was the best school year ever. (laughs) I didn't do shit that year. I just really chill. (laughs) It was chill. Then I transferred to John Eric. And I graduated from Eric. What'd you do? So you graduated. What was next in your life? Yeah, I went to Suno. I went to Suno first. And then I decided to move to Baton Rouge and went to Southern. Didn't graduate from anywhere. My major then was criminal justice and sociology. So I spent like two and a half years in school. And then I decided that I was going to move because I couldn't make enough money to live here. Because I didn't have a college degree, and I wasn't making any money. I mean, minimum wage now is seven. Yeah, well, my first job when I was 16, I'm 34 now, I got 5.25 an hour in California. Um, And I know California... Might have been had a little more. higher. So I think yeah. we might have been doing 460. Yeah, it might have been. I feel I didn't realize because I thought it was still so low. And then I came here and they're like, no, it's actually less here. And I was just like, man, you can't. And I was a kid and it was, you know, not cutting it for me. So I just imagine oh. folks that had to rely on that and had daycare and I had children and yeah. had stuff to take care of. Yeah. So at, let's see, at 16, I got a job at Children Palace. I met Tanzi Love who my father thought was the best boyfriend ever. Tansy wind up stalking me, and my father, the U.S. Marshal, wind up putting a myth 
to putting an end to that. I don't know how that happened or what happened. You never but found I out? Never find out. Didn't want to. But <laughs> it stopped and I was happy. Oh, wow. He happened to call one night. Um, I hadn't answered his calls. I was going. I went to a basketball game. And Tanzi kept calling and I didn't answer the phone. Back then we didn't have cell phones. So he kept calling and I wasn't home. So he finally called up with me about 10 o'clock at night. Well, it was a rule in my house. No one can call after 10. So I think he called about 10.15. And so anytime a call come in the house after 10 o'clock, my father would pick up the phone too. And he would let you get whatever that person was saying out, and then he would chime in. But Tanzi was really mad that he hadn't heard from me all day. So he chimed out how he was going to track me down, and how could I not do that? You know, he just pretty much reprimanded me. And my father heard every word of it. My father just said, hang up the phone. And that was it. <laughs> I never heard from Tanzi ever again. It was over. It was done. It was a wrap. Were you guys broken up and he was trying, or was it like, you know? I don't know. Tanzi, my father thought he was the best thing, like sliced bread. My father thought he was wonderful because he was polite and he came and we went, I went to an interview at Children's Palace, met this strange guy. He walked me back to the car, introduced himself to my father, and then asked, could he take me out? It was the best presentation ever, so my father was all in. And so for about two, three weeks, my dad would go, where's Tonzi? Where's Tonzi? I like Tonzi. Where's Tonzi? And because my dad liked him, I really didn't like him at that point. Yeah. I was done with him. Oh, I got pregnant in high school, so I had my first kid at 19, 18. And then I had my second kid at 21. Then I went to college. I always want to ask, like, how is being a, a mother? Did you want to have kids? Was it uh, something that happened? And how how did that change, you know? I had to graduate. So uh, my first kid was, I was pregnant through my senior year. So, and I wasn't the only one. There was a lot of people pregnant <laughs> during our <laughs> senior year. So that means you just don't go to gym or whatever. So I went to school all the way up to the day of labor. What month was that? September. I went to school all the way up to the day of labor. Like, I went to school every day. And I did my homework, and I did everything. Because by this time, I was really serious and was ready to graduate. I was tired. And the mess up with 3-5 made me repeat the ninth grade again, but gave me so many credits that I skipped 10th grade and went straight to 11th grade. That's weird. Yeah. So So you still did four years, just a different... Yeah, it wasn't 9, 10, 11, 12. It was yeah. 9, 9, 11, 12. Okay. That's very Yeah, because odd. I left 3, 5 with four classes instead of six. And you needed, in order to pass, you needed to have six. Okay. So that means when you took that second year, I was classified as a freshman. Because you didn't have the six classes. Yeah, I had yeah, the six classes. And then after I took the four classes plus the six I had, I had ten, which classified me as a junior. <laughs> and you know, we only needed 20 credits to graduate. And so in my senior year, I got pregnant, and a whole bunch of other girls got pregnant. So we were still pregnant tribe. But you got pregnant your junior year and then September of your senior year you had the baby? Or did uh, you have to stay another? It was... Um, Senior year, okay. so it was like September. I was pregnant that summer. I had baby in September. I graduated the following year. In okay. Went to school every day up until the last. I ran track in August. I played ball. 
I did everything that I was supposed to do, did homework, did everything, up until the day I had labor pains and didn't come in. Then they brought my homework to me. I stayed out for maybe two weeks and then went back to school. And my mom watched the baby. My stepmom watched the baby. That was really nice of her. Yeah. and then That's I, fast, too. Usually you take at least a month to... No, I take older women a month. When you're in high school, <laughs> you just... You drop that and go, okay, what's next? <laughs> and so I was back doing me, and I was back in school, and I would just come home and take care of the baby. And then I graduated from high school. And then I think I moved to Baton Rouge. From there, I got pregnant again and had another baby. No, I was in New Orleans when I had the second baby. Then I moved to Baton Rouge. Okay. And I had the second baby. And then moved to so you were a mother of two when you moved yeah. to Baton Rouge. Yeah. So it wasn't a planned idea. I was just being really busy and really out there and doing everything that I was not supposed to be doing. And it was like, okay. And then once I had the kids, it was like, okay, yes, we're going to take care of them and we're going to do what needs to be done. Went to college and I went to school full time. My first job was um, counselor. How do you like that? I liked it. Before we had to have licenses to do it, it was nice. Because I moved from Baton Rouge to Florida and then from Florida to Seattle. Why Florida and Seattle? Well, Florida... Very um, different places. <laughs> Tallahassee, Florida. I had a friend that stayed out there and I liked Tallahassee. I liked Florida. I like the sunniness. It reminded me of New Orleans without the extra booze and alcohol. I didn't have a degree. So all I was making was minimum wage. And a friend called me and said, oh, you want to make $10 an hour? I got you. Come on up here. So I moved to Seattle. Yeah, that makes sense. And I started working at a bakery and got my first $10 an hour job. And then once that happened, I was, I was rolling. Yeah. And the school system was better up there. And... About, I think, a year after I moved up, I met my, my wife. Okay, how'd you guys meet? Um, and were, were you out at this point? Um, once I moved to Seattle, I got out. That was another thing, too. Um, gay culture in New Orleans was very, in the South was very oppressed. And if you were gay at that time, they'd be trying to take my children away from me. Because they were really into the whole idea that being gay was a sin and it wasn't good for the children, and it was a mess. And being in New Orleans, I think one of the reasons why I left New Orleans, too, besides not being able to make a decent living, was the idea of how homophobic New Orleans was. We had two gay clubs. Well, one was two female gay clubs, Charlene's, and then there was another one. But the boys had clubs all over the place. And they were still raid our clubs. They were raid, the police were raid our clubs. They were stopping. If you were overly, overtly gay looking, they would harass you. So they would just look at your appearance and judge right. you? And judge you. They would harass you. You know, and if they knew you had children, then you had legal proceedings. And, and I lived undercover so long here. It was like, the longer I hit, I wasn't out to my family. I wasn't out to myself. I just wasn't out. And I couldn't live like that. And and when I moved to Florida, I, I got a little bit more out, but I really wasn't out then. I didn't actually come out until I moved to Seattle. And I went, so I went to a gay pride parade, and they were holding hands off of Capitol Hill. And gay pride has moved since then. But it was on Capitol Hill, and it was so nice to be gay in a place to be gay. It was like, it was okay to be gay. It was okay to hold a woman's hand. It was okay... To, like, the the morning after Pride is so nice. 
when you go down Capitol Hill, and they used to have a lot of gay restaurants, and you go into the and the morning after prior, you see couples eating breakfast. Yeah, just normal, like right. like you would expect. But then you realize, hey, this doesn't happen everywhere, and it can't happen. And it can't happen everywhere. Like the day of prior, you're holding hands. You got the, you know, the women on bikes. You got this. You got the guys. You got, and Capitol Hill was just. We had the gay bookstore. We had red and black bookstore. We had restaurants. The whole area was just a gay vibe. And I had never been in a place where it was just okay to be gay, which was so sweet. Like I felt liberated just walking down the streets of Capitol Hill. And it was just so okay to be gay. And it was so okay to talk about being gay. And it was red, red rainbow flags everywhere. It was just sweet to be gay. First pride parade I actually went to was, I, I did, I was like, I'm going off, I'm doing this, I'm going all out. And I went to San Francisco for there and they have like one of the, probably the biggest pride parade. And it is, it's that vibe and that feeling of, uh, not camaraderie and just togetherness and everybody just supporting each other and just being happy and just yeah, being like, and it's like let's you just don't live. even, is you just, it's like you didn't feel weird. It was the one time I didn't feel weird. And I felt like the possibility that everywhere in the world was gay. Like, yeah. you know, when you're on Capitol Hill, like I said, Capitol Hill was just gay mecca. Yeah. You don't feel alone. And I didn't feel alone for the first time. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm, I did good. I went to my first gay pride. I did good. And I think a year later, I met my wife. And I met her with a friend who stayed in a CD in Seattle. And um, this woman from Mama Roots came over to talk to us about Mama Roots. Mama Roots and Jamba JB was a spiritual sisterhood for African-American women. So I was always into spiritual stuff, like I said. And so she came to visit us, and she talked to us to tell us about Mama Roots. And her and I just hit it off. And it was the summertime, and we... Went to Trader Joe and got a bag of salsa. <laughs> yeah, you went to Trader Joe's. <laughs> got a bag of salsa. Yeah, mango salsa. Yeah. They don't even make it. The first time I ever been ghosted was through um, Trader Joe when they stopped <laughs> making mango salsa. That was the first time, <laughs> the first time I was ever ghosted. I was like, well, and the seven layer dip that they make. They don't make that anymore neither. Well, that sounds good. Right. It was seven layer dip and mango salsa. We lived off of that all summer. <laughs> that, and you know, when you get into a relationship, it's that heat of you can't get enough of each other. You're in bed all the time. And you live off snack food. <laughs> so we did that all summer, which was wonderful. And the yeah, kids that was sounds in great. camp. And she had a son and all the kids was in African dance camp. And we just ate good food and loved each other all summer. And next thing I know, we spent, what, over 16 years together. We just, yeah. That's, it's beautiful when you're just like, wow, it's been 16 years and it feels like, and you, you know, it feels like we just met. Right. And we just and had, we're sharing that mango salsa. Yeah. So you you go first, don't you? <laughs> yeah, we would eat mango salsa and hang out all night. And go to the steam and the bathhouses and stuff like that. So it was wonderful. And and so that was in Seattle. Uh-huh. And then I know you're back in New Orleans and you're about to leave us for Boston. Because you've moved a bunch. I feel like a couple of years ago you moved, like you left and came back. And like, where else have you been? What got you back to New Orleans? Um, In 2010, I got really sick. My marriage ended in 2009. I was diagnosed with sarcoidosis and neurosarcoidosis. What's that? 
Um, sarcoidosis is when your immune system decides to do more than it needs to be doing. <laughs> well, that can't be good. So, so it, I never heard that. I never heard of that before. I'm simplifying it on yeah. a real low level. I appreciate it. I'm simplifying That medical it. shit is over my head. And if yeah. I'm, if you think I'm scared of spiders, which I already told you, anything with blood, I'm out. Like, oh, you I won't hear you. I won't hear you anyway because I'll be ready to pass out. So I was working full time, going through my divorce, and my kids were both in jail, and life was really stressful at the time. And I had a complete physical, mental break where uh, my body just kind of decided to start shutting down. So my kidneys started to shut down, my liver shut down, my lungs shut down, and I was just in a health crisis. And it started something really simple, like I had, um, I couldn't stop going to the bathroom. And they thought, oh, it's a yeast infection. I'm like, no, it's not. And so they gave me antibiotics for that. You know, yeah, you're like, I know this is not a fucking yeast yeast infection. I'm drinking too much fluids. This is something is off. It's a yeast infection here. Seems, yeah, fucking doctor. So you're you're a woman. Clearly, it's a yeast infection. It's a yeast infection. It was another woman going, it's a yeast infection. (laughs) So she gives me antibiotics. That's the first week, and it started in like October. Um, my my wife moved out in October and I helped her move, which I kicked up a lot of dust and mold in the house. So I had this cough and this bronchial cough going on. And so I'm packing, I packed, helped her move. I'm in the house by herself. We live in a two bedroom townhouse, house full of stuff. And I'm working, I work for downtown emergency shelter at the time. And so I'm working, I'm working in the shelter. I was working as a case manager, planning to go get my master's, my MFA, and um, so I can be an art therapist. That's the plan. That sounds great. So, so I graduated in 2008 from getting my bachelor's. I'm planning to start um, my MFA program in 2010. But I'm really sick, and I can't figure out what's going on. And it's I can't not stop a yeast infection. And it's not a yeast infection. And every time I go back to the doctor, she hands me more antibiotics. Here, try this strand. Here, try this strand. So I'm visiting her, and she keeps giving me antibiotics. By February, I'm at the, by January, mid-January, I'm at the height of whatever is going on. I can't stop going to the bathroom. I'm sitting at my desk. I'm drinking four or five different drinks, water, everything. I'm thirsty. I go back to the doctor. And I go in, and she gives me two booster shots of antibiotics, sends me home. I run into a rave fever. I go back down to the doctor today and that next morning. So I, it completely crashed. Well, good. I'm you should have gone back to them and be like, right. look at what's happening. What happening. Right. Clearly, and that's what I did. these antibiotics aren't doing shit. I completely crashed. They take me to Virginia Mason. They do... Everything, I'm out. I'm passing out. I'm waking up. I'm passing out. I'm waking up. My vitals are off the charts. Things, systems are shutting down. And then I start to see everybody. I see the glitter people. So everybody I look at look like drip. And then next thing I know, I'm out. So you're like, is this real? Is this not real? I don't know. I see glitter people. All my friends I look at, they got glitter all over their face. They look like extra queens. So what happened was... Passed out. I think I went into a coma. 16 days later, I wake up. 16 days? I wake up. A nice little southern doctor standing at my bedside, and he goes, Who are you? 
And my response is, which name do you want? And my girlfriend laughs and says, she's fine. Because <laughs> I have so That's many different days. Yeah, yeah, she's fine. <laughs> and so when I woke up, I was on a ventilator machine. I was at a catheter. Then um, they started doing tests. And they kept saying, well, it's not drugs. Because they did drug tests. And it's not this. And, then I, and they didn't know what it was. So they just kept testing and testing. And everything kept coming in the bright little sun. They southern. finally wrote down not yeast infection. Right, yes, <laughs> finally, right. It's not a yeast Stop infection. Antibiotics. Right. Stop it. And and they were really had, you know, healthcare disparities. They were really like, it has to be drugs. I'm like, no, I don't it do drugs. It does not have to be drugs. Right. I, I don't do drugs. And it, they did several drug tests and they all came out clean. So then they finally say that smart little doctor that I woke up to said he did the lung biopsy. He said, ah, sarcoidosis. And in the lungs, you have granulomas, little, look like pebbles. And that lets you know that was, it was sarcoid. But because it had affected so many other systems and I couldn't stop going to the bathroom, that mean I had diabetes insipidus. Then that mean it had to be neural too. So once they figured that out, they say, let's do prednisone. And prednisone is a nasty drug. So I took this nasty drug, and prednisone is such a nasty drug. It give you, gives you diabetes mellitus, so you have to have insulin. It shuts down your adrenal glands. It gives you high blood pressure. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a nasty little drug, That's and it's true. immune suppressant. So it stops my immune system from overreacting by suppressing it, but it creates all that other stuff that goes with it. So then I took that, and I was on dialysis. Because my kidneys stopped working. So I was really sick. So when I say I was sitting on my hospital bed, I was actually sitting on my deathbed and said, if you could do anything in the world you want to do, what would it be? So it's like, if I can get off this hospital bed, I'm going to do stand-up. So I got out of the hospital. I went in February the 2nd. I got out March the 3rd. Okay, so like a full month? A full month in the hospital. And if anything, if you know anything about the hospital, nobody keeps you a whole month. No, they want to get you out quick, fast, and hurry. Because the longer you stay, the more susceptible to disease you are. Yeah, because back in the day, like even with uh, women who have babies, they used to keep you at least one day. And I'm hearing now they're just like, okay, you got the baby, go. See you. Everybody's healthy, get out. Yeah. And they they kick you out fast because there's so much disease in the hospital. You could stay there and get other infections the longer you stay. Yeah. So for me to be there for 30 days. So after that, I got out, going to dialysis three times a week, got over 30 prescriptions to fill. Damn, 30? Yeah, it was a mess. And so um, I did the dialysis. By May, I was out of dialysis. My kidneys came back online. The prednisone was decreased. But I had to make a choice. And the choice was quantity of life or quality of life. And for me, quality was more important than quantity. And at some, at one point, it was just like, none of the drugs matter. I can't take them. Mentally, mentally, your mind can't handle it. I remember sitting in the bathroom one time, and there's no windows in the bathroom in Seattle. And I'm sitting there on the toilet trying to figure out why was I, why was I in this room? <laughs> if I was on the toilet every day, I had to use a bathroom, right? Yeah. No. So I'm just sitting there, and I sat there for a long time, 
trying to figure out why was I in this room. And I was like, I can't live like that. So eventually I stopped taking all of it and it was like, okay, if I die, I die. And I didn't die. Yeah, I was like, that's it, it's a scary thing, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like they possibly overprescribe anyway. Like 30, I feel like 30 different drugs will work in, in different ways in your body and that they all have side effects. And like, the side effects is what was getting me the most. The side effects of prednisone, the weight gain, the hunginess, the high the blood fog, pressure, the fogginess in the brain. Um, there were days I couldn't remember my name. I was watching this. I had the same movies on rotate. I love your Fight Club t-shirt. Amanda has a Fight Club t-shirt on. I got it at Goodwill. It was $2. I was I'm like, I'm going to wear this all the time. When I first got sick, I had Fight Club on rotation. I would work my 3D11 shift, come home and watch Fight Club every night. Because I loved the dichotomy of his alter ego running his life. Yeah. And that's probably where Moxie came from. Yeah. Cause you were like, I want to have this Tyler inside of me that's right. like gonna fight when, when I don't fight, you know? Right. And I felt things slipping away, but I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong. And every night I would watch Fight Club to go to sleep. And then I would wake up in the morning. Oh, and at the time I was the spokesperson for the union for social workers. Oh wow! So I was got right doing, back in there. Involved. I was in, <laughs> yeah. in that all before I got sick. So I was doing that, doing the divorce, doing the kids, doing my life was on everything was stressful, busy. yeah, stressful, stressful. Because people would get fired and they would come to the union, then I would have to represent them, and then I'd get their job back. Oh, it was a mess. So I'm doing all of that stuff, and I'm, I'm, my mind is just going. Going, going, going. And the, the biggest thing I learned, like I was watching Fight Club and the whole idea of Moxie and Tyler and how Tyler just ran. Tyler had the style. Tyler had this. Mm-hmm. Tyler, Tyler, and he was not there, but all this lived inside of him. And in the end, he shoots Tyler and realized he was. This was all him anyway. And he wasn't as geeky as he thought he was. And no, because he had it inside. He just, he couldn't see it. Like, yeah. He could not personally see it, he but would it not was there. Accept it. It was always there, but he would not accept it. And then when he finally accepted, you know. So I, I watched months and months of Fight Club. So after I got sick, my new mindless activity, I watched Old Brother Where Art Thou and Out of Wild. I had those two movies on rotation. And yeah. each time I watched it, I never remember what happened at the end. I never remember. It was like putting it in for the first time every time. And I was like, I just can't be this slow, stupid. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. But I knew by the 15th it's just day. Numb. It's numb is what it is. Yeah. By the 15th day, I was like, I should know. What's going to happen next? Yeah. I should know this movie. I should know the words to this movie. But I was watching it like it was new every time. Okay. So 30 days of that. And finally I go, okay, I can't live like this. And so I was like, okay, no more mad. I just stopped everything cold turkey. Just cold turkey? Yeah. Wow. I was like, I'm done. I can't do it. And I say, if I die, I die. Quality of life is more important than quantity. Yeah, and how long? That was, what, seven, eight years ago? Uh, right, and I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, okay. <laughs> and I started reading comedy books. I hit Travis up. I wound up moving. And so it it's a lot of healing that comes with this. And being sick, it's a lot that comes with it. 
But the cool thing about it was that I got to see how resilient I was and how, because I'm a sarcoidosis member of the Sarcoidosis Network Foundation. And I would read their stories about the medicines, the doctors, and how their body is not working, and this is not working, and that is not working. And that's what made me realize, no matter how much I take the med, I still can be sick. So why not at least be able to remember the time I shoot in the process? (laughs) So quality of life is more important Mm -hmm. than quantity. And I just started studying comedy. And I said I wanted to laugh instead of cry. And... That was it. You know, the, the thing that's interesting, too, is when we go through life and death experiences, either ourselves personally or sometimes someone close to you, you know, it, it does push you to stop living scared. Because I feel like a lot yes. of us, like, I live scared of, like, well, what would happen if I left my job? And what would happen if I, you know, I want to do comedy, but I'm there people are going to – and you and you live scared, and then you something happens – you know, or you just get to this place where you're just like, I'm going to not even live like I'm dying, like that Tim McGraw shit. Like, just, I'm just going to live. Right. And just, and this seems like you got to that point. And what did you say? You said to yourself, what do I want to do? And it, it, it came clear coming. to you. It was like right there. It was clear. And that might not have been something you would have reached because at that point. Because everything didn't seem like all the stuff that I thought was important wasn't that important anymore. My marriage wasn't that important anymore. The kids and their drama wasn't that important anymore. Only thing was important was the quality of my life. And it just kind of, I would tell people, you got to be selfish first before you can love anybody else. So, like, when you're in a plane, they tell you to put your mask on first before you put the mask on the chair. Yeah. I think that stands hold for life, too. Absolutely. My girlfriend always says, says that about self-care and <laughs> to, to making take sure. Take care of yourself. Do what makes you feel good. And before my sickness... I was busy doing everything for everybody else and taking care of everybody else. And that's the whole nature of a social worker. You in there, you're case management. You're trying to find housing for these people. They need housing. You're trying to make sure they have any meds. You're trying to case manage them. Manage yeah. them. And then you go home and manage your own family. And then you go back and manage your job. And you go back and forth managing other people's life. But management is not living. And then you never look in the mirror and say, what do I need? What am I feeling? Right. And you know you're missing something and you know you're lacking something and you know you're unhappy, but you're too exhausted. And you don't have time for that. To fix it. Yeah. And it just kept going and kept going. So like you said, I got to the point that I'm not running scared of life anymore. And practicality is what I call it. When you get to the point where life for you is practical. I keep my job to pay the house note. I keep my bid to pay the car note. I got to make sure I have enough in my account. I got to make sure you're doing things for practicality and not for what moves your life. Yeah, or your heart. Or your heart. And you bumping your ass doing it because it's practical. And sure, you pay the bills and everybody's paid. But at the end of the day, you're lost in the middle of all that. And I was like, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be practical. And so the, the whole idea of moving to Boston, the sarcoidosis, the thing about sarcoid, it lays dormant, is I've been blessed for the last, what, eight years? This fall, I went back to work last year because I got custody of my grandson. So I went back to work like a real job, which wasn't a real good idea for my health. So I went back to work and I wind up getting whooping cough in December. 
and I wind up having to go on oxygen. Now, being on oxygen, that means I can't move and do the things I like to do. I got to keep everything on a low pace. And I was like, okay. So I Googled, where was the sarcoidosis clinic? Healthcare in New Orleans sucks. So if you move to New Orleans and you want healthcare, come with it. <laughs> you probably just have a yeast infection. Yeah. All doctors down here think you have yeast infections. <laughs> and you just take yeast infection medicine. Just give you some prune juice. Yeah, some, some prune antibiotics. juice and some Get vinegar. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we are so joking. Healthcare down here <laughs> sucks, though, for real. That's for real. So I Googled where was the best place for a sarcoidosis clinic, and it was in Boston. Mm. So it's like, okay, I need the clinic now because... The disease is getting progressive and progressively worse, and I need to self care. Like you said, you gotta put yeah. the mask on. I gotta put the mask on, and so moving to Boston is putting the mask on. It's a better move for me and the baby. It's a better move for me and my girlfriend. It's a better move, but it's really about putting the mask on. Yeah, and taking care of me. This. I mean, I hope everything goes well in Boston. And, uh, oh, yeah. I know um, you'll still be doing comedy out there. Right. And the whole thing about sarcoidosis is that it's stress-induced. So if I'm not stressed out, I'm good. If I'm not upset, I'm not angry about anything, I'm good. I can make do. But I got to. I have to deal with, You ever work diligently not to be stressed out? Yes. That's a job. Yes. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Like, to be diligent. Like someone asked me, how do you feel about people stealing your jokes? And I was like, I don't. Yeah, you can't do anything about it. One, I can't do anything about it. And two, but it's human nature. When someone lacks the confidence and they want to do something really bad and they don't have the skill, they're going to look at other people and steal mm-hmm. until they develop the confidence to move on to the next level. The goal for you as a comedian is to work so good with your voice and have your voice so well known and so pronounced that if someone does steal your joke, someone else is going to say, that sounds like Moxie joke. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like Amanda joke. I've heard that before. (laughs) And we both tell very personal jokes. So Right. Like if you're, you have a joke about your mother and something that happened with your mom and then someone else gets on stage and does, it's like, that's Moxie's mom. (laughs) Right. You hear it. So if you add that personal touch to your stuff, sure, steal it if you think you got it. You can have it. But the thing is, it's not going to translate the way it translated for me, for you. Yeah. You got to make it your own. And it takes people time to find a voice to make things their own. And if you're a lazy comic, you won't find your voice. You just keep still. Yeah. But do I get upset about it? No. Do I get mad about it? No. Am I angry that people are stealing premises and jokes? No. You know why? Because nothing new in comedy has been said. There will be nothing new said. Everybody has said it at one point or another. The point that's new is that it's a different person. My likability, your connection with me. That's what makes the commodity. It's not so much the joke. Are you making people feel what they need to feel when they see you perform? And that's it. It's not even your material. No one can steal that. You know, the way that you perform something in your way, in, in you know, your perspective, like nobody can take that. Even if they do it word for word. Right. Even if they do it word for word. And like, and the, the biggest example I got of that was when Richard Pryor first started off. He used to mimic Bill Cosby. 
Really? Yeah, he used to. They he have did very a whole, different comedy. Right, he did a whole set when he first started off. He did a whole Bill Cosby set, and Bill was like, "Dude, you got to find your own voice." And yeah. then when he found his voice, his <laughs> voice was covered with you know the N word and F bombs. Yeah. And then Bill was like, "You're just too nasty." <laughs> but, but yeah, he had to find his voice, and if the quote unquote godfather of comedy is copying off of someone else. Mm-hmm. Then it's like when you're in art school, they teach you how to paint. Oh, I went to art school too. I forgot to say that. Of course that. you did. Of course I got a, um, <laughs> I went to Gage in Seattle. When they go, when you're in art school, they teach you how to paint by you copying the mask. Mm-hmm. That's how they teach you how to paint. Well, so they, you learn the skills and then you should develop your own style from that being like, oh, I wouldn't exactly. have done this. I would have done this. Right. And that's how you develop. And yeah. same thing with comedy. Well, yeah, I, I started before I went on. I, I listened obsessively. Like at work, I'd have Spotify just playing comedy. I watch everybody's specials. Um, yep. My dad told me like a good tip. Like he just watched a special and like literally hand write out somebody's joke just to see the structure of it and yep. to see like how it's set up. Like I used, I studied it. And you, and you do study it, but you can't regurgitate it or take like, oh, no. well, Dave Chappelle said this and I'm going to like add this other piece to it. And it's like, no, no, no. You see how he does it and you understand the structure and the you method behind it. You look at the it. structure, but what I, I think what I study was the persona, how they presented themselves and how they put themselves out there. And, and that was intriguing to me because voice came from on comedy. Yeah, absolutely. It was how they presented like. Robin Williams is one of my favorite comedians because you know anybody you cannot steal his shit. <laughs> he is all over that stage and the way he's presenting, how fast he's talking and moving, and there's no yeah. He there's only one Robin Williams. Yeah, and it's totally organic, and I don't even think he writes it down. I think <laughs> he has a topic and he runs with the ideal in this topic. I want to be that free thinking. I want to be. I could be that free thinking after a few joints and <laughs> and a couple of bottles of Grammy, but I want to be in control and be that free thinking. That's a tough thing to achieve, and that is a tough because it's a matter of being inhibited, not concealing yourself, not just running with the idea, going with the idea, and that's what I I think one day I hope to inspire to be that free. Like I have those kind of moments. When I have an off-the-cuff performance. Like, I did a performance the other night. I was hanging out with Gigi. And I was taking her somewhere. And I wound up getting some time on stage. And I was not there. I had left my body and had got into the moment. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking about what I wanted to say or how I wanted. I just kind of ran with it. And the audience ate it up. I want to be an uninhibited like Robin Williams. Yeah, because that's real, and people feel, feel that, it. and they, you know, they can connect with that for sure. Yeah, I, I always liken myself to um, the thieving of jokes is the whole idea of I want to be the prince of comedy. Meaning, you know, back are you a Prince fan? Yeah. Okay, back in the day when Prince used to write songs like um, under Alexander Nothing Head mm-hmm. and write for other people. <laughs> You would hear the music and you knew it was Prince. Oh, yeah. There's so many songs. Right. You would go, yeah, that's so Prince. (laughs) Oh, that's so Prince. I know he wrote that. Yeah. And if you do the research behind it, you find out what he wrote that. I want my jokes to be like that. 
that when you hear it, you go, yeah, damn, that sounds like Moxie. Yeah. That sounds like Moxie. If she didn't write it, she must have had a finger in that. That sounds like Moxie. She must have gave somebody a finger. That sounds like Moxie. And when I can achieve that with my persona, I think I'm on my way to what I consider fame. Now, fame for me is not a whole bunch of movie deals and stuff like that. Fame for me, here's my fame, my ideal of fame. My ideal of fame is working six months out of the year, make enough money for the six months that I don't have to work for another six months and hang out with my family. And then I'll grind for six months, hit the road, do a tour, travel, do everything. And then I come home six months, bills paid, everything paid, and just travel and hang with my family. That sounds good. I hope you're able to achieve it. Thank That's you. Fine for me. Thank you, Moxie, so much. Moxie G Rogue coming over, hanging out with us. This has been great. Thank you. Um, we're going to play a clip of your, one of your performances. Thank you. Yeah. You're so welcome. Yes. Thank you. Did uh, I answer all your questions? Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. We're going to have bonus footage too. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you. Thanks. Oh my God, it was so much fun. 
When I got off the plane, I was greeted by um, Baba Bo Dave. And then when he took me to the compound, there was a party in my honor. So they were singing my name, Moxie, 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 Moxie. Man, you never feel as good as you feel when you got a bunch of people you don't know screaming your name. <laughs> I understand how Beyonce feel every day. <laughs> so they were screaming my name, and I, I felt like the Queen of England. I really did. Like after a good shag and a good cup of English tea. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm special. I was grooving. And then, you know, it's like, okay. And then they had a whole spread. Like, they was really, it was a party. The party lasted three days. And so. You know, it's time for Food Chronicles. I gotta tell you about the food. Okay, Fat Girl Food Chronicles, I gotta tell you about the food. Oh man, so there was an Igusi soup, and then there was fish and red pepper sauce, and when they say red pepper sauce, they be habaneros to the 12th power, red pepper sauce. And they had okra stew, and they had fufu. And the main course was smoked bush rat. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I felt. <laughs> Smoke bush rat. Mm-mm-mm. Delicioso. Rat tastes just the way it looks. <laughs> like if you can chew beady eyes and bug teeth, that's what the rat tastes like. And, and you know, what got me was that a rat don't stand a chance in Africa. Like they love rats. They love rats so much, like a rat don't stand a chance in Africa get eaten fast as a cockroach in China. Yum yum. <laughs> yum yum. I've had fried cockroach. It's really good. It tastes like almonds. Yeah. It'd be better if it was legless, because then you ain't got to pick the legs out of your mouth. But fried cockroach is pretty tasty, especially with some dip. Honey dip. <laughs> tastes pretty good. You can only eat it when no one tells you it's fried cockroach. <laughs> yeah. And you can't have a party without liquid spirits. You just can't, right? That's, you know, we're from New Orleans. You can't have no party without no alcohol. So we got liquid spirits. And Mama Bode said, here, Mama Moxie, drink this. This is palm wine made from the sap of a pine tree. It is good for you. Oprah, my God, sat from the pine tree was good. Three hours later, we ran out of palm wine. Baba Bode said, no problem. Drink this honey wine made from the poop of bees. It is good for you. I'm like, okay. Three more hours later, and 10 glasses of wine later, we ran out of wine again. Baba Bode said, no problem, here, drink this. Now, understand, the whole time, he was my guide. He was, like, everything to me. So he would hand me stuff to eat, try, whatever. And I wouldn't question it. I'd just put it up in my face and I'd drink it, you know, being the American that I am. He said, here, drink this. So in mid-swig, like, when he was, like, right here, like, going, almost going down, he said, that is seen in gin. <laughs> it is good for you. <laughs> yeah, wow. I'm swallowing and it's going down. I'm thinking, clever little African man. 
He has done something no man has ever done before. He got me to swallow. <laughs> okay. I'm out of my lead over here. Just swallow and keep going. Okay, so while I was in Africa, I found out that all of this is considered an asset. It's worth 20 goats, 10 cows, and two chickens. I was upset. Just two chickens? Just two chickens? I got the haggling with the Nigerian man. Wrong moves. Two whole chickens turn into a leg and a thigh without a biscuit. I was in there going, who would have thought our love for chicken was hereditary? This is wrong. I spent two months in Africa. And every day I was there, I was asked two questions. Question number one, eh, where is your husband? Question number two, do you want to marry my cousin, my brother, the neighborhood thief? Oh. It wasn't because I was cute, uh, my pretty face, or my childbearing hips. Mm -mm. My USBs are about to boys to the yard. <laughs> Thank you to our guest, Moxie G. Rogue, for sharing her world with you. Thank you to our sponsor, Crescent City Books. Special thanks to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. Thanks to all our friends and supporters out there. We really could not do this without you. We appreciate y'all so much. You can catch Greetings from Queer Mountain live in New Orleans, Austin, and New York City, and coming soon to San Francisco. Check out our Facebook page for more information. You can also find us Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, near and queer to my heart and then on twitter queer to my heart thank y'all good night good morning good day even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.